Hello and welcome to the menu on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippi. This week we hear what it took for Santiago Lastra to create the first Mexican restaurant in the UK to win a Michelin star. It's like having some sort of alphabet. So then the more letters that you have, the more words that you can use. So then that is what happens with our flavors and our ingredients and our preparations and the list that we do with different things that we have. Because then in the future it becomes easier because it becomes natural. Then we meet Hollywood director Paul Feig who can now also count a new genus, one of his accomplishments. I was always going like, yeah, but there's always something missing, something I wish it was in there. And just over the years kind of went, I know how to do this. If I could make my own, I know exactly what I wanted to taste like and finally got to do it. All that and a dinner soundtrack recommendation ahead on this edition of The Menu here on Monocle 24. Our first guest today is Santiago Lastra, who became internationally known when he worked with the launch of Noma Mexico some years ago. Back in 2020, he launched the restaurant Call in London's Marleybone, just a stone's throw away from Monaco's Midori House Studios. The restaurant has become a steady favourite, and earlier this year, Call became the first UK-based Mexican restaurant to win a Michelin star. Monaco's Charlie Filmacourt spoke to Santiago about the star and his impressive career. We're really proud and really happy. It's uh, difficult not to celebrate every day, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think like since I got the sta- uh, like that's kind of like a part of my mindset. It's like okay, let's celebrate again tomorrow <laughs> and again and again and again. So I'm really happy. Seems like not a bad approach to have. We were following the formation of the restaurant quite closely at Monocle. And obviously over the last two years, it's been a really difficult period for hospitality and for restaurants in particular. Struggles opening up, finding staff. Does this make all the hard work worth it? (laughs) (laughs) I think it makes the hard work even harder, (laughs) you know. I think opening a restaurant is a challenge, it's a big challenge. But then I think opening it in these specific times with everything is... More complicated than this should be. It's just crazy. And to be honest, in the last couple of years, it's been really difficult for me, like personally, and uh, for all the staff to be able to cope up with that. But at the same time, I think I don't know how it was before. Like, I never had a restaurant before, so I have no reference. I, the only thing that I know is this, this reality, and then I guess is the new reality, as people like to say it, in terms of... What is the way that you should operate the restaurant in 2020 or 2021, 2022 and in the future, you know? So mm. that that allows you to put as your core value to be adaptable and to take care of your staff and to work locally and to make all these things that normally people were, I don't know, just taking for granted in the past. And do you think, obviously, this is all you've known in these kind of well, very difficult testing times? Surely that's going to hold you in good stead for the future. It's only going to get easier, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, I guess what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? I mean, like, that is in a way what, what I've been feeling in the last couple of months, that all these things are kind of finding some sort of steady ground. And that's really exciting because that makes me feel... That we're finally able to enjoy having a restaurant mm. and get creative again. We've been in a, some sort of like survival mode <laughs> yeah. in the past couple of years. But at the same time, you want to keep yourself creative. You want to keep yourself motivated. You want to keep everyone just feeling that they are doing something great. They're just not only just making it happen because mm. at the end of the day, people work a lot in hospitality and in restaurants and 
what you have to do as a leader or as an owner or co-owner is to be able to keep these people motivated and happy. And I think that's been really important for us in the last couple of years. And that's not something that we're going to stop doing. Mm. But at the same time, it's a great, great opportunity to just to look on dreaming again, you mm. know. Speaking of that dreaming, you've worked so hard over the last two years, as you say, to kind of keep things going. It's been difficult. It culminated in a Michelin star, which is obviously an amazing achievement. What's next? I mean, surely it must be quite hard to think of, you know, where do we go next? Keep the motivation high, you know. What's the next challenge? Well, I didn't really see the Michelin star as our, like, let's say, final destination or as our main big challenge. I think when I opened the restaurant, it was more about the community. And that is the reason why I opened the restaurant. It wasn't like to become like a famous chef or to make something like better than other people. It was more about, okay, I'm going to move to London and I'm going to open this restaurant to showcase culture to showcase Mexico and the idea of this meaning of quality of Mexican gastronomy and Mexican culture and Mexican cuisine. And to merge that with another culture and discover ingredients and what can we do with ingredients, the local ingredients from the UK, and how can we translate that inspiration to the local stuff that grows around here. And also beyond that, just to create this community that goes beyond the restaurant and the guests, but also the farmers, the craft makers, the producers, and kind of link everyone together. And I think that is something that is an ongoing dream to be able to just to keep building this community, keep discovering the local British seasonality, and to keep bringing more and more of these ideas and inspirations from Mexico. And I think that is something that it doesn't really end with a recognition. That's something that is ongoing situation. Mm. And in terms of just like personal goals, in a way of focusing in the restaurant as a business, I think one of the main goals that I'm focusing on this year is like some sort of like international also people to come here from other countries to try the restaurant. Mm. As a destination. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Which is interesting because we thought about that before. But no one has been really traveling much uh, before, but we've been getting a lot of support and love from the local community in Mm. London. That is literally, it just feels amazing. It feels amazing. The people here has been super supportive. And obviously the local community has been supportive, but I think looking at this kind of more generally, do you think that Mexican cuisine is being appreciated more in the UK? I know for a long time the kind of Tex-Mex stereotypes prevailed because I guess Generally, there wasn't too much new Mexican food coming into the country, but now it seems that changes afoot, doesn't it? Yes, it's interesting because Tex-Mex is not really Mexican food. It's not also bad food necessarily, because if you go to Texas, they will have like amazing Tex-Mex food. And some of the dishes are incredible, but I think it's just the misconception of people thinking that Tex-Mex food is Mexican, and it's just a different category. And I think... Because of globalization, the people that explode these concepts together with, I don't know, like hamburgers and pizzerias and all this stuff, it was one of the concepts was Tex-Mex food that took over the whole world. Yeah. So that has been, a, has been a process for people to really understand that as, that's actually not authentic Mexican. But then also I think gets related with um, the way that London has been changing as a city and how the standard of quality rise organically. When someone makes a fresh pasta in a restaurant here in London and people try it, it's like, oh my God, 
I'm not going to go back to the other restaurant that don't make fresh pasta. So then you are like, oh, my God, no one is coming to my place. So I got to start making fresh pasta. Otherwise, I'm going to close. So then that is kind of how the quality in the past 10 years in London has been changing to from like fusion, a more, uh, let's say, chain concepts to saying like, okay, this is authentic and it's also possible to make in the UK with local ingredients, like things make from scratch. And then that is something that we are joining into. And I think Mexican food is joining into this like movement of high quality food from around the world happening in London. So then that's really exciting, you know. It's been a process because there's other countries that have nothing going on regarding Mexican food, but I think here is growing every every day. As a Mexican chef, and when you speak to maybe people, former colleagues from Mexico and other chefs who kind of gone on to work around the world, is it something that you think most chefs from Mexico are well passionate about, about kind of changing the stereotype and pushing the true Mexican cuisines out there? Yes, I think there are chefs that are doing that abroad for sure. It is difficult because for me, I remember in the first 10 years that I was outside Mexico, I refused to make Mexican food. Like everyone <laughs> will ask me, so yeah, Santiago, you're Mexican, make Mexican food, you know. It's difficult. I refuse because there's not, the ingredients are not the same. Yeah. So you cannot find your specific herbs, your specific fruits, your specific things that will make Mexican food what it is. So then that has been my limitation and that is possibly the limitation of other Mexican chefs yeah. around the world. But then now I think what we're doing, it helps for people to be able to get more comfortable on doing it because the food that we do is not about the ingredients. It's about the way of cooking. And that means that you keep the soul and this parameter of uh, Mexican flavors but we don't have to bring ingredients from Mexico. And I think that will help for people to do more and more Mexican food around the world. And again, that's I something guess. that's at the heart of coal, isn't it? It's using Mexican techniques and maybe more traditional techniques, but using the ingredients that you can find and have access to in London and the UK. How difficult was that at first? Well, that was really difficult, really, really difficult. As an idea or as a concept was simple. It was, okay, I'm going to do that. And then I had a few ideas of how to do it. But then when I was on the ground, and I made a presentation to present to my business partners, and they were like, oh, yes, this is interesting. Like, everyone was excited about it. But then suddenly I have a kitchen before we open the restaurant for like six months. And I had the opportunity to say, like, okay, now it's time to cook. What is going to be in the menu? And I thought it would be easier. <laughs> and I started making things that then suddenly I face a big wall that I wasn't really able to cross because you have to really, really have tools for you to... Imagine that Mexico has like 100,000 different colors and then here there's like less, you know, less yeah, colors yeah, to play with, you know, <laughs> less tools to play with, which is interesting and makes it really challenging. But at the same time, you really need to develop, you know. So it was a long development process for about like seven, eight months. So you, we sit down and you think about the ingredients. So you can put the example of mango. So you see a mango and the mango is uh, yellow and it's quite fleshy and juicy and sour and has like these like floral notes and it's slightly sour and sweet. So then if you are in London or in the UK in the autumn, you don't have mangoes growing around. But you think about, oh, so, so what is yellow? 
So then probably the pumpkin. So pumpkin is yellow. So then how can we make this pumpkin taste sweet and sour? So then what we do is to make a vinegar with elderflowers to get the floral notes. So then after that, we mix it with some raw pumpkin and then we make an ice cream. So then the idea is that you have the inspiration and the end goal is the mango. So you see it as the end goal, like as a, like that's the dream. And then you have to work out the path. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and you work out the path, and then it's like, oh my God, I think it needs a bit more acidity. I think it, And then it is about getting inspired by flavors of nature, because nature creates fruits for humans or animals to eat them. So it's something that is perfectly made for you. And the fact of using roots or using like other vegetables or using other things to be able to get there... It's exciting, but at the end of the day, I think there's no one wiser or a better reference point than nature. Yeah, so that's what we're trying to do. And there's also a lot of replacements of uh, herbs that, for example, instead of coriander, we use a herb called searograss that grows in the beach in Kent that smells like, and it tastes a little bit like coriander, but better. And uh, instead of uh, lime, we use fermented gooseberries. Or instead of, like, right now in season, instead of grapefruit, we use, like, forced rhubarb and pine. So it's about, like, finding different flavor notes and flavor profiles and really, really get focused on textures to be able to not recreate but, like, replace these uh, ingredients and get inspired by Mexico. But with the only rule that we have that is the food to taste Mexican, even though the ingredients are not there. And to be approachable, at the end of the day, we don't want to be, like too stuffy or like too formal about it yeah. and when you go into the restaurant probably no one is going to give you this massive talk about like the pumpkin sorbet but it's just for the end result of like you go there you have amazing food and it tastes like Mexico and have there been any I guess British ingredients that have surprised you that you've probably didn't use too much beforehand and they're now a staple of your menu or yes. anything that you've managed to really change the flavors of and, and implement? I think British ingredients are incredible and I have loads of examples of things that I've been just blown away with and then you just it's difficult not to use it for everything. Like for example right now we have the forged rhubarb. The rhubarb is just incredible because you can juice it and make like a, a ceviche you know like for like source of acidity or you can also like blanch it and make a compote and use it for desserts you know it's just such an incredible taste you mix it with pine and it tastes like grapefruit to make palomas so it's one of the most one of my favorites also seabockthorn that is another berry that also grows in the beach in scotland that is quite sour but super fruity it's like a kumquat and then from there is the different types of kombuchas that we do that we use for everything and gooseberries in the summer, elderflowers. I mean, like, the thing about British seasonality and British ingredients is that the seasons are really short. So then as soon as you find something, it's like, oh, my God, I really love this. <laughs> like, going to use it, then it's gone. Yeah. So then that, well, that also makes the experience a little bit more interesting because it's like, okay, well, next year we do a dessert with that, you know. <laughs> so then like that, you don't get bored. Plan yeah. years ahead. Exactly, exactly. And it, so it seems that your menu obviously is a bit of a a response to the climate in that it isn't that easy to get most Mexican ingredients in the UK. I'm sure, you know, you can get certain things, but especially fresh ingredients, that's going to be difficult. Do you think the availability is improving? Do you think that we're on the right track? And do you think Mexican ingredients will eventually be something that is exported around the world in the same way that you could see like Japanese produce everywhere? I think it's more about the uh, idea of the flavors than the actual ingredients. I think the ingredients, the dry ingredients, travel a little bit better. 
than the fresh ones because you never know why you can have like bananas in the supermarket and where are they from and I work quite a lot in sourcing ingredients in different farms and markets in Mexico and you can see that the produce there's no natural way that an avocado can be in your fridge for a week and still green <laughs> you know there's like there is no natural I mean literally in Mexico like my grandma had an avocado tree take the avocado down it's black in two hours you know it's like <laughs> it's like that's the natural it's avocado you know so then that's the thing that for those ingredients to be able to travel and be perfect for you to use, there are so many chemicals and processes that are against nature and that damage the quality and rise the price of fresh ingredients. And that's why I think the best way forward, because we've been getting quite comfortable about it, like you can just use ingredients from anywhere all the time and it's going to be fine. It's a bit more expensive sometimes, but it's fine. But I think the way forward is to be able to use the local ingredients, but in a different ways, in different preparations. In, so then you also don't get bored of like, okay, well, pumpkin again or parsnip <laughs> again. But then you are like, oh my God, like the parsnip, you can do preparations like plantain or the pumpkin. You can do the things that it will taste like super fruity. So it's like, that is the idea. And I think something that we can, you know, like the chefs can do something for the community, for them to be able to use local ingredients, but also having different flavors and different experience out of them, you mm. know, so they don't have to bring things from other places. Santiago Lastra there. His London restaurant co-received a Michelin star recently. You are with The Menu on Monocle 24. Paul Feig is a Hollywood director behind a number of hit films, including Last Christmas, The Heat and Oscar-nominated Bridesmaids. And before you ask why he's being featured in a food and drink show, I can also tell you that he has created a spirit, Artingstall's gin that has recently launched, for example, in the UK. I met Paul to talk about how the search for the perfect gin for his martinis led to the launch and what makes Artingstall's gin special. I love gin. I love martinis. And ever since I was a kid, I've always been obsessed with cocktail culture because to me, it just represented being an adult, a grown up. And when I got to my 20s, I really wanted to get into it and I was old enough to drink. So to me, the martini just represented everything. And I started drinking vodka martinis because I had a bad experience with gin, as most of us have when we were younger, where you kind of go into your friend's parents' bar and you open it up and you go, oh, it smells like, you know, pine cleanser or something. So I just like, oh, I guess I don't like gin. I was drinking these vodka martinis and then read a book said a real martini is gin. You know, it's not vodka. So I was like, oh, well, I better learn how to like gin. Taught myself to like the traditional gins that were super junipery and super piney, but was always kind of like, oh, I think there's a better way to do this. And over the years found mellower ones like, you know, the Hendrix of the world and Sip Smith and Oxley and all that kind of thing. But was always going like, yeah, but there's always something missing, something I wish it was in there. And just over the years kind of went, I know how to do this. If I could make my own, I know exactly what I wanted to taste like and finally got to do it. What was your vision? 
It was to make a gin for people who say I don't like gin, <laughs> like myself.、Mm-hmm. Because what's happened with my gin now? You know, I'll say, especially in America, where people are very weird about gin. You know, say,、so, oh, I have a gin. Well, I don't like gin. I try this, and they're like, oh, I like this. So you know, is pulling back the juniper for me, getting a little bit of a citrus hint in there, little. Taste of floral, but with a peppery sort of back taste. It's really I formulated it first and foremost for martinis. But what happened in doing that is it became the perfect vodka substitute for any cocktails that usually take vodka. So some years ago, you decided to go and create a gin. How did you find the right people to work with? Yeah, well, it was a twenty-five year process because I, especially back then, I was just an actor, a jobbing actor, and so you know, I had no name whatsoever. So everybody's like, "Well, who cares?" Unless you start your own company and do it yourself, which I couldn't do. So, but when finally about six years ago, I did a line of、uh, clothing for J. Crew, just a little thing for charity that went really, really well, and it sold out. And we did suits and ties and all that kind of thing. And so when that worked, because my agents CAA were able to kind of get that pairing for me, I said, okay, now the ultimate challenge is get me a gin. And they're like, well, that's impossible because you know you're not a rock star, you're not a famous actor. I said, just keep trying, keep trying. So eventually, they found、uh, this company called Minhas Distillery, which is out of Calgary, Canada, and run by this and founded by、uh, brother and sister、uh, Ravinder and Manjit Minhas. And they'd been approached by a lot of musicians and famous people about doing something, and they just didn't want to get into that world because when you hear them explain it, it's like a lot of people come in and kind of put their name on, and、mm-hmm. then you're just fighting this uphill battle to get them to do anything, and they're just kind of it's a vanity project. But when they found out about me and saw sort of the lifestyle I represent with the way I dress and sort of my you know the way I kind of face the world as you know an adult in a sort of a classy world, you're trying to class it up. They liked that. They made their money off of budget beer. Uh, but then they got into well spirits, and they really wanted to do a premium spirit. So I just got them kind of at the right moment. Did you agree about everything straight away? What kind of discussions did you have about the flavor and so forth? Yeah, well, what the nice thing was is they were really into letting me make this my own. And were there to guide me because they had so many other brands. So it wasn't kind of like you know we're starting a company and this is our first product. This was just their first premium product. So they were just amazing and walked me through it. You know, because I'm not a scientist, I'm not a distiller. I just know what I wanted.、And、so when you first meet, they you know kind of say, "Well, what do you want it to taste like?" And so、mm-hmm. I can go for an hour of talking about I want this, I want that, I don't want this, I want that. Here's some ones that I kind of like, but here's what I don't like about those brands. And so they take all that information and they give that to their distillers. The distillers do about eight different versions of kind of what you're talking about. And then they bring those. You go back. You know that takes a number of months to kind of get that together. Then you go back and do a tasting, and you're like, oh no, yes, this one, half of this, a little bit of that. And they—that's the process you do over and over again, always doing another eight that are getting very, very micro variation by the time you get close to the end. You mentioned you made it clear already that this definitely wasn't a vanity project, and you certainly were involved、yeah. in the creation of this gene as well. How? How scary was it to create something and then kind of to actually be responsible? It was nerve-wracking, I have to say. The, the most nerve-wracking moment was because it was exciting up to the point. It's like when you write a book and when you have to send off the final draft, you're like, "Oh, well, this is like it. Like I can't change anything." Like when I write a movie script, you know, I know, okay, we'll be on the set, we'll change this and that, you know. But it had to be very specific. So the last tasting we did with these eight like micro variations, I've never been first of all drunker in my life because you're tasting all eight and you're going back and forth like, "Okay, this," and you're not taking a big 
big gulps, but it's still gin. It's, you're in the 40 to 45% you know, alcohol range. And just all that tasting, and you finally go, I think it's this one. Then it's like, okay, let's make sure it works in a, a dirty martini, in a Tom Collins, you know, because you, you want to make sure that it was versatile. And, you know, by the end of that, <laughs> you're just flat out on the table. But I passed out knowing I had hit the perfect gin. Excellent. So so <laughs> you, you've been slowly launching this gin internationally, and you took the first steps in launching yeah. the drink in the U.S. about two years ago. Mm-hmm. What has it been like? Obviously, pandemic has been making things more complicated. Yeah, it made it hard. Uh, we were just about to go into all these clubs in Los Angeles and in these really high-end restaurants, and then the pandemic happened and everything kind of got shut down. And then a few of the clubs that we really wanted to get into went out of business. <laughs> so it slowed us down, but at the same time, we were able to sell online during that and just kind of roll the word out. Then I also did an Instagram cocktail show every day for the first 100 days of the pandemic just as a way to sort of entertain people, to raise money for different COVID charities, and to get the word out about the gin. And that worked really well. So, But it takes forever to roll out alcohol because, mm-hmm. first of all, just to get things approved, the FDA in the U.S. has to prove everything, including every word on your label, on your back label. On the back of my label, I have like a bad poem that I write kind of as a joke. And one line of it said, perfect with mixers makes great elixirs. And they were like, you cannot say elixirs because you are saying that it has medicinal purposes. So they had to change. And so somebody changed the poem. So on the back, you'll see it's a really nice rhyming poem. And then suddenly it hits the two lines and they don't rhyme. Have you ever had the issue of people not taking you seriously, considering that, you know, many famous people create their drinks nowadays? Yeah. Kylie Minogue, I think she's got her own sparkling wine. Yep. So many examples. And then you are a film director. Do you ever come across this thing that people think that maybe you are just doing it because you want to do something else? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, there's so many of these kind of vanity projects, like we were saying. But here's what I always say. Like, look, I'm not famous enough to be somebody who could attach their name to it, you know. So I think people kind of so get it. going to launch a perfume next. No, <laughs> although I would love to. <laughs> no, even when we were picking the name, it was kind of like, everybody's like, well, aren't you going to call it Feegs? I was like, well, first of all, that's the worst name ever for something. Because people don't even know how to pronounce my name. I've never met a person who can pronounce it the first time they meet me. And also just like, can I have a Feegs martini? But my mom... Mom's maiden name was Artingstall, and it was a London Dry that I wanted to make, and I wanted to make it feel like it had been around for 150 years. So I go, oh, Artingstalls, I really like that. But a whole testing of like, I'd go like, if I'm at a bar, I go, oh, can I have an Artingstalls martini? I was like, oh, that kind of rolls off the tongue very nicely. Mm, totally, totally. I'm wondering, I know you appreciate a good martini, and you've had a few in your life. I'm wondering yes. if that somehow reflected in your projects when you are directing something. <laughs> Do you have time to drink? Do people have time to go for a drink? Well, here's the thing. When the, you are in charge. Well, that's it depends. When you're in charge, you can make sure that you either can't have a drink or you can't. And what I do is I shoot French hours, it's called, which normally when you're shooting the business, you shoot a 12-hour day with like a one-hour lunch in the middle of the day. But there's a thing called French hours where you just go 10 hours, no break. They pass around food the whole time. But then at 10 hours, everybody drops everything and that's it. And it's over. And then you are able to go home and have dinner and have a drink and get a full night's sleep. So So that's why I like to work. It's a system that's been abused a lot in the States. People would say, oh, we're doing French hours, and then they do a 15-hour day. Mm -hmm. So nobody gets to eat lunch, and, you know, everybody's tired. But I stick to it because it's very important to me to have that balance. I want to be able to work hard, and then I want to be able to not necessarily play hard, but I want to be able to at least have a nice end to my day so that I keep a normal rhythm. When you're making a movie, it can just become so overwhelming, and you're so in the weeds that you just don't have any perspective on the life around you. The thing is about drink and food is, 
nice that it brings people together. Is that also something you find yeah. important that when you are working with a big amount of people, mm-hmm. you actually have a drink in the evening and do something else together that's oh, not working? Very much so. I mean, we're really my wife and I are very much into uh, like throwing a party every week. I mean, it made it hard during the pandemic on this last movie I just finished because everybody was kind of quarantined. But even at that, we tried to do it. But my wife comes along in most of my shoots, and we call her the the CEO, the Chief Entertainment Officer, and basically she'll always find a boat somewhere, you know, and so we'll go up and down whatever river we're near and have a drinks party and and food. Yeah, if you're not having fun while you're doing these things and it's not a family and a social Mm -hmm. thing on top of doing great work, then what's the point? You know, like, life should should be nice, especially if we're doing something so fun as making a movie, even though it can be hard, it still is a pretty great job. Film director Paul Feig, who's launched his own gin brand, Arting Stores. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for great recipes. This show was edited and mixed by David Stevens and I am Marcus Hippi. Once again, we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Confidence Man with Feels Like a Different Thing. Thanks for listening.